Hello and welcome to another episode of Guido Talks, the podcast that brings you the week in news and behind the news on the Guido Forks website. My name's Tom Harwood and once again I'm joined by <coughs> founder and editor of Guido Forks, Paul Staines, and Christian Kaugi, a reporter at the website. Now, just before we get into the bulk of the episode, remember that you can not only watch, listen to us on iTunes, as lots of you are doing, you can also find us as a video on YouTube. Just search Guido Talks and remember to subscribe. So we're recording this episode just minutes after the fallout from the Sky News, Kay Burley, Beth Rigby scandal has hit. What we've heard just now is that Kay Burley has been suspended from Sky for six months. Um, Beth Rigby has been suspended for three months, um, and so have some of the other players in the whole drama. So firstly, let's bring you some of the context behind what's happened here, how we got the scoop, um, and, and what goes forward from here as well. Now, I heard on Sunday that there had been a very interesting breach of COVID restrictions by some senior people at Sky News. Um, the story that I heard on Sunday afternoon evening was that the night before, um, Kay Burley had a 60th birthday party, and this was hosted at the Century Club in London. But more than that, there, there were about 10 people there in her party, some of whom were um, Sky presenters, notably Beth Rigby and others. But beyond that, then a group went to a second ref restaurant after curfew and stayed there for a couple of hours before then trooping off to Kay's West London house. So that was the shape of the story, but we couldn't immediately publish it because we needed to verify it. And so I spent a lot of Monday uh, chasing up, trying to um, track down who was there, speak to as many people as possible about it. Um, it, got, it got to the point that um, Kay started texting me and saying, um, why just, uh, phone me um, rather than talking to all my friends. So, but then when I tried to talk to Kay, she wasn't, she didn't want to talk. So it was a, I think there was a bit of an obfuscation strategy to try and squash the story first, but I was able to speak to the owner of the second restaurant. Um, now, now this man gave me a story um, as to why a group of people, including Kay Burley, were in his restaurant after curfew. Uh, he said the restaurant was closed, but they came in to pay a bill for a meal that they had previously ordered, um, which sounded a bit funny because we knew that they'd been there for a substantial amount of time. Um, so when I asked the owner of the restaurant, uh, how long did it take to pay this bill? Could it have been several hours? Could they have been paying the bill right through until the early hours of the morning? He didn't deny that. And once we had the confirmation that Kay went into his restaurant with a group of friends after curfew, um, he said to pay a bill, um, but they could have been there for several hours. That's when we sort of knew we had enough to go and publish this story um, and publish it. We did. Let me interject because I listened in on that call and it was clear that the second restaurant owner was improvising a story as you were speaking. Um, perhaps because he's not a media performer and perhaps because he hadn't known he'd have to figure out a uh, alibi. It was clear that he was improvising a story. And then when you did do the story and put it out after all the obfuscation from Kay, she immediately tweeted out an excuse that she wanted to go spend a penny. 
which wasn't the same story that the restaurant owner told you, was it? He told you she's coming to pay a bill. Well, exactly. You'd think that, that there'd be coordination behind these excuses, um, but apparently there was absolutely no coordination of, of what would be said, even though they were talking. I know that um, Kay and the restaurant owner spoke on the day, but clearly they didn't coordinate their excuses. And that was the really obvious reason why we knew that her excuse um, that she tweeted after we published the story was wrong. To be ever so slightly fair to Kay, I do understand that at one point she was uh, driving wasn't she, in the point of that afternoon to go and set up for the next morning show, which she was going to be doing on the first set of vaccinations. Uh, so she couldn't uh, answer at one point, uh, but it was also uh, aware um, that night, on the Monday night this was, that uh, The Guardian had also um, become aware that there was an internal investigation or um, underway about this COVID breach. Uh, they published that uh, later that night, and it was, uh, wasn't was too long before uh, Sky announced that she wouldn't then be presenting the next morning's show, so the, the drive down to the vaccination site was ultimately pointless. Yeah, this is what this is why we ran the story at this slightly unusual time for Guido Fawkes of I think it was around 7.30. Um, we, we had it all written up and ready to go at about four, but we were really keen to speak to Kay first. And obviously we sort of accepted, okay, we might not be able to speak to her as she drove um, to Coventry, but we were WhatsApping a little bit and it was like, do you want to make a comment? Okay, we're presuming you don't want to make a comment. And then she messaged me saying, oh, don't assume that. So I was like, well, would you like to call? And eventually it just got to the point where we knew she didn't want to speak and was sort of obfuscating as you do. Um, and, and so we, we hit publish. And I, I felt, I felt a bit sad when we hit publish as well, because I, I, I genuinely, I, I, I like Kay. I don't think she's um, the sort of monster that a lot of Brexiteers think that she is. I think there are far, um, far less impartial broadcasters that work for Sky News than Kay Burley. Um, but but it was very clear it was a story, and as 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 Calgi said, um, I think one other paper had hint of it. So um, so we we went and published that on the on the evening. Especially, unfortunately for Kay, she's really um, made a massive thing over the last year about holding the government, public figures, especially Dominic Cummings, to account over COVID breaches to the point where a lot of it was you know editorializing it wasn't just reporting and that's really what set her up to fall so hard over this stories because it really was as rank uh hypocrisy uh, as you could you know imagine yeah um in her statement that has just come out today sorry paul you go on a little detail where you say she maybe we should understand she was driving she did manage to text us when she was supposedly driving and i don't know about you but my car has hands-free phone calls. As you two know, that I'm often on the phone to you while on a long drive. It's actually easy to do. So I think there was a little bit of foot-dragging delay on her part. Well, it was either foot-dragging or texting while driving, and I'm happy for her to uh, <laughs> proffer some explanation. Well, I think this is this is the issue, though, isn't it? Kay Burley is an experienced professional journalist who knows the best way to suppress a story. And I think she took a gamble that we had less evidence than we did and needed a quote from her to, to get it to run. In, in the end, we, did, we didn't actually need a quote from her to get it to run. We inserted her comments that she tweeted immediately after we published the article um, beneath the article. Um, but, but we had enough from other sources, and that's what really 
undermined it. The other thing that I think undermined the case is that for the last um, however many months, the the tactic that um, Kay Burley has deployed on her morning show is to quiz ministers over the rules. I don't think that there's a single person um, in this country who has heard what the rules are more than Kay Burley, because every single morning, any cabinet minister on the show, it will be, what am I allowed to do? Is it one scotch egg or two scotch eggs? Uh, are, are gyms open in this part of the country or are they closed? You know, all of this stuff. Um, so she would be, she would have been very, very aware of the rules. Um, and yet, her statement that she put out just on Thursday afternoon um, maintains that she thought that it was COVID compliant, which is very, very hard to believe. Mm. And it wasn't other... <laughs> Yeah. Is, is the fact. And even, even in her statement uh, accepting that she's going to get six months suspension, she kind of stretches a point, said she thought it was COVID compliant. There's no possible way it could be COVID compliant. There's no 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 loophole that she could have used. And I we've mentioned uh, Kay and um, Beth Rigby so far, but there there was actually someone who who went even further uh, in breaking the rules, and and that was Inzamal Rashid, who is Sky's northern correspondent and lives in Warrington, just outside Manchester. And he actually travelled over 200 miles cross-country to attend a birthday party, which, from the out, you know, from the outset, was blatantly against the rules. Um, and and you know that is, I'm surprised actually that he uh, was punished uh, just as lightly as as Beth Rigby, because I think uh, you know just down from. Kay, who invited people back to her house and was the organizer, that is that is pretty, you know, uh, brazen. Yeah, and it's not even that, I mean, you're allowed to take a drive in this country now. Um, it's one of the um, few things, I think in, in Scotland, that would have been illegal for some parts of Scotland. But in, in the UK, that drive, I think, was technically within the rules. But I think more than that, the point that Sky presenters continually made during the Dominic Cummings saga is it's about the spirit of the rules more than the letter of the rules. Um, and so obviously there was a case that what Dominic Cummings did um, back in April was within the rules. There were these technicalities around um, child protection, but at the end of the day, none of that mattered because it looked so um, bad and it looked like it was completely against the spirit of the rules. And, and that's really uh, what this drive, this 206, I think it was, mile drive showed. But that's the but that's the biggest thing, isn't it? It's the it's the people like Beth Rigby and Kay Burley who have been most assiduous in sort of um, stress testing politicians over these restrictions, um, uh, reporting on breaches as if they're sort of the end of the world. That's why it's a story. It's the it's the sort of hypocrisy angle. Whereas if it had been someone like Nigel Farage or Julia Hartley Brewer who'd been to a party, there's no way it would be this much of a story because they've got a philosophical, um, consistent um objection to uh, uh, treating people who who do what actually quite a few people are doing uh in terms of breaching those rules uh, around the edges um they they treat that um with a with a lot more um compassion than i think some of these sky news journalists have done and that's really what's undermined it i think for me this also highlights the importance of of media guido because without Media Guido, it, it would have taken a lot longer. In fact, there's even an, argue to, an argument to be made that without our initial publication, some others wouldn't have leapt on it, would have, would have let it lie. And 
you know, they might not be generally accountable, television journalists and, and prominent journalists, but actually the, the, the prominence they have, the audience they have, it makes them more powerful than 90% of backbench MPs. Um, and so it's a really important to hold anyone with public power, public influence to account. And, and that's what we did this week. And I think there was a hint that there were maybe one or two newspapers that have sort of heard a little bit about it. But because they move in the same circles, go to the same dinner parties, whatever, there might have been a bit of a chumocracy amongst some of the media in terms of not chasing after the facts here. Um, so I think that that sort of renegade side of, of media, Guido, is, is, has been um, very illuminating. Ironic, given we go to the same parties as well, Tom. So they... <laughs> Don't I haven't been to any indoor dinner time. parties, thank you very much. <laughs> it's not, it's, it's maybe not recently, but I, I can, I can certainly vouch for that. She's come to some of my parties, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fearless, fearless. Well, I mean, highlighting this whole um, hypocrisy uh, was what we were keen to do on Guido. So a, a video was put together of Beth Rigby and Kay Burley interviewing each other, of course, using clips from when both had interviewed uh, government advisors and government ministers uh, about breaking the rules. And it really does highlight, I think, um, the driving thrust behind this story, which wasn't the fact that there was a 60th birthday party. It's that the people at this party had been some of the most pious over the rules uh, in recent months. And this clip that we can show you now explains that. Why should we abide by the rules? ordinary families have put up with all kinds of restrictions and hardships. People not even going into hospital when their kids have been having cancer treatment. Why are you so different? We don't need to go into all of that detail. How can you even countenance at the moment staying on and not resigning? The point, the point, so you're, making, the point you're making screaming is... screaming at the telly saying, yeah. it's one rule for us and it's one rule for them. And, and you're, you're falling into that trap. How could you not even check with your boss? If we break the law, does that make your position untenable? But of course, that wasn't the only huge story this week. There was also an enormous story, a good news story for once, and one that was broadcast right the way around the world. What was this, Calgi? Uh, well, this was the fantastic news that um, we have now seen the first uh, ever people on, on planet Earth, essentially, get the COVID vaccine. And get an approved it, COVID vaccine. They approved COVID vaccine and the honour went to a um, couple of old people. Uh, but uh, what this allowed us to uh, get was some uh, incredible footage of, uh, of Matt Hancock. First rule of journalism, um, Calgary. First rule of journalism. The names. The names. One of them was called Shakespeare. I don't know that. Right. Uh, anyway, there was there was uh, Maggie. Maggie was the first one, and then it was William today. Shakespeare. It was very historical. Yeah, uh, and we got this incredible uh, footage of of Matt Hancock uh, openly weeping on television, um, and uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of ministers, while being interviewed by Piers Morgan, have wanted to do the same. But this was. Uh, a sort of uh, bizarre thing to see from a government minister. Shall we see a little clip of it now? Just simple words there, reacting it. You're quite emotional by that. 
Well, it's just, it's been, you know, it's been such a tough year for so many people. And there's William Shakespeare putting it so simply for everybody that, you know, we can get on with our lives. And, and you know, there's still a few months to go. I've still got this worry that we can't blow it now, Piers. We've still got to get the vaccine to millions of people. And so we've got to keep sticking by the rules. But it's just, you know, there's so much work gone into this. And I'm really, really, it makes you proud to be British. Now, of course, he, I think he was wiping away a tear, but, but in that video, it looked a bit like he was laughing as well. Because, of course, they were discussing William Shakespeare, who was the second person in the country to get the vaccine, to get this approved vaccine. I said the country, in the world, the second person in the world to get this approved vaccine, um, which is extraordinary and also very funny because it led to a lot of jokes, a lot of Shakespeare puns, um, which we won't uh, go into now. The taming of the flu. Okay, I've, I've said one, that's it. Um, <laughs> but beyond, but beyond the vaccine, which is obviously great, great news. Um, this week, the Science and Technology Committee, uh, chaired by Greg Clark, uh, had an, an extraordinary long session on Wednesday uh, where both Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance were grilled by MPs. Now, what did we learn there, Paul? Well, to cut a long story short, Patrick Valance basically said he had no hard evidence to justify the hospitality curfew. There'd been no research to back up the idea that the COVID virus is more dangerous after 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. There... There is uh, no evidence that um, alcohol at home or alcohol uh, out in hospitality had any different reactions with the virus. So basically they're going on a hunch. Now it's not entire, entirely unreasonable to presume that uh, uh, people lose their inhibitions when they drink, but the fixed curfew has the downside of forcing people in the metropolises, in the big cities, to all get on public transport at the same time. So staggering it or not having a curfew seems to me to be as a reasonable a proposition as having one. Uh, but it was nice to actually hear him admit that they were just going on a hunch. Absolutely. It seemed that this country just followed what Belgium did. Belgium, of course, the worst hit country in Europe, proportionally about twice as many COVID deaths than in the UK. Um, but they imposed some curfews and suddenly it became the fashionable thing to do. And the only justification that these scientists said was that, well, we know that COVID is more likely to transmit in enclosed spaces and alcohol can make you lose your ambitions. But I mean, you, it, you're totally right, Paul. You can just as easily think up um, a num like just as many reasons why a curfew is a bad idea, from crowding when people go in and go out to um, having less time to have more social distancing. It's another argument for extending shop opening hours, for example, um, so that you can have the same number of people over a longer time. Obviously, there's less interaction there. It does seem like a bizarre policy, but it was so um, refreshing to hear them admit that it was based on literally nothing. Now, there's one other story that's been rumbling through the week, but not perhaps getting as much pickup in the mainstream press as it, as it should. Um, and that's that there is now a very clear leader in the country, uh, in the UK, for the, for the nation of the four nations with the most coronavirus. And it is extraordinary looking at those graphs of cases over time. Um, the soaring number of cases in Wales has been extraordinary. Now, on Wednesday, we reported that there were four 400 more COVID patients in hospital than at the peak of the first wave 
back in March and April. And now there are um, an incredibly high number of cases per person, far higher, about double that of England. The reason why this matters is that Wales is just about the only country in the world to have decided that a two-week lockdown would have been a good idea. Now, they were the only country to follow that suggestion that Keir Starmer made back at the end of September. And it hasn't seemed to have worked. I mean, yes, the two-week lockdown suppressed cases for two weeks, but then immediately after, the argument that Keir Starmer and Mark Drakeford and all, all those Labour politicians made was that if you have a short lockdown, you can then open things up. It will, it will save Christmas. It will enable us to open up the economy uh, faster and smoother and better. What's actually happened is as soon as they stopped the lockdown, the cases soared far faster than uh, before. It's, it's, we've had an absolute explosion of COVID in Wales. And one of the sad things about it is that the First Minister is blaming the public, which you, you would have thought would be an absolute no-go for any politician, even when uh, it might have an element of truth to it. Um, if a politician blames the people for breaking the rules, that's that seems to be a pretty unwise political strategy. But yet this is what Welsh Labour is up to. Um, so I'm taking uh, a personal mission to report this sort of stuff because I, I think it's interesting to look at the comparison. Uh, Wales has about a third of the population density of England. You'd think that they had all of the um, natural um, elements that would make the pandemic lesser in Wales. And yet it seems to be a lot, lot worse. Uh, it's one we're going to be keeping an eye on. Something a bit more light, let's move over from Wales to Birmingham, where the local council has taken it upon itself to start a cultural revolution through the mechanism of renaming streets with uplifting and uh, woke names. Now, this isn't the biggest city in the world. Uh, I quite like Inspire Avenue. Uh, Respect Way has its case. But when you start going for things like Equality Road, and diversity grove i think you're getting ideological uh you know it's kind of it's hard to hard to not argue that they're trying to promote a certain agenda that's perhaps party political and i don't really want to get in a situation where you know in like in russia where you have uh, in the old soviet union you had um squares and streets named after patriotic revolutionaries and whatnot i, I mean Acacia Avenue might be out of date, but let's not go down ideological road names. That's not where I want to live. Well, I mean, I'm not uh, always opposed to uh, ideological road names because by contrast, uh, the mayor of the Tees Valley uh, pointed out to me uh, this uh, on the same day that we ran this story that he is now lobbying to have a street called uh, the Council of Europe Boulevard renamed after a local D-Day war hero. Uh, and it was previously, before the 1990s, called Trafalgar Street. So if you're, if you're trying to erase Europe out of street names, have at it. For they, changed, they changed Trafalgar Street. A, a street presumably named after a, ba a battle where we, where, where Britain alone defeated a European superpower, um, to I, one where we've been subjugated by it. That's extraordinary. I was, I was shocked, you know, having been born there, to learn that there is a street in Middlesbrough called Council of Europe Boulevard. 
existing structure. I remember when he was a student that uh, I put forward a motion proposing that we rename Heathrow Airport Thatcher Road Airport, but it never really caught. <laughs> we don't really do airports named after politicians in this country. Of course, in the US, you've got JFK, and in, in France, you've got Charles de Gaulle. I, I mean, maybe maybe we should we've get Boris John Island to go ahead after all. We've got John Lennon Airport in Liverpool, haven't we? Mm. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure Boris would be delighted to have the fifth runway named after him. Uh, <laughs> <if> it... <laughs> or maybe one of the diggers that he was supposedly going yes. to lie in front of. Uh, but of course, uh, Birmingham wasn't the... Uh, uh, Birmingham went woke this week. Surprisingly, we uh, had the extraordinary story of David Lammy uh, getting piled on for racism, which is not something that happens very often because he... Uh, dared to praise Churchill as uh, someone who stood up for human rights. And of course, the left have, you know, they've had the debate, they've put forward the motions, and they have agreed that Churchill was the most offensive racist of the 1940s, uh, famously so. And uh, you cannot praise him at all. So um, we'll... Uh... It's, it's the old, the old joke, isn't it? If you think Churchill's a racist, you should see the other guy. <laughs> um, uh, on a lighter note, um, Trust, Liz Truss, one of uh, the blog's favourite uh, ministers, is now, according to the readers of Conservative Home, the favourite cabinet minister. She has really shot the rankings. Um, she's rolling, she's rolling out all these uh, uh, deals with all these countries. I think we're up to fifty-seven. Is it we're up to um, uh, trade deals? A lot of them are um, just continuation deals, but I can remember during the uh, Brexit campaign, the referendum campaign, people saying, oh, you won't get these deals, they'll take years to negotiate. Well, <laughs> I think by, by the time next month when Britain has fully exited the transition, most of the world will be uh, in some kind of deal. You know, the majority of the world that Europe had trade deals with will be anyway in safe. Um, Conservative Homes readership polls have proved to be very accurate in predicting um, future leaders. I don't know if it's a bit early to be thinking about a leadership campaign. Well of course there was there was I think it was two summers ago Jacob Rees-Mogg led all of the polls over the summer and suddenly that's what sparked Mogmentum it was these Conservative home polls because they have ha they have actually had quite a good track record of um, member accuracy when it comes to certainly leadership elections and, and other genuine tests of, of Conservative Party membership feeling um, but no it's, it was surprising to see Liz Truss actually edge out uh, Rishi Sunak who has done nothing but give people free money. So perhaps it does actually, um, it, it does it does pay to be slightly ideological in cabinet. People like to see that. People are sort money. of standing up for principle. It's not free money, it's your future tax money. I, I, I had heavy air quotes around that. Like I'd, I'd like to- tax money, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm not helping at all. <laughs> Right. Well, moving on from um, who is up and who is down 
in the cabinet, there was an extraordinary furore that took place in the middle of Prime Minister's questions, where Boris was interrupted not once, but twice by the Speaker, who was having it out with Chris Bryant. Now, we put together a little video explainer of what was going on. Um, so I think we can play that for you now. So as you can see here, Chris Bryant is sort of perched on this little ledge underneath the press gallery. He's being very um, huffy, he's folding his hands, he's, he's not looking like he's quite there. And then off camera, the speaker indicates that um, Bryant should take a seat rather than sort of perch. At which point Bryant goes, um, or mouths the words, F off. Mr Bryant. I suggest the whip goes and does a word with him. We're not having that disgraceful behaviour, Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, I, th I think you should you should give summon him back. He seems to he seems to have vanished. Now, at this point, of course, uh, Chris Bryant comes back. He was hauled back in by a Labour MP. Mr. Bryant, I think we need this conversation later. Fine, Prime Minister. Fine, Prime Minister. And the reason why this all matters is that, yes, of course, it's, it's extraordinary to see Prime Minister's questions be interrupted like this multiple times and to see such um, rude behaviour, quite frankly, from a Labour MP. But Chris Bryant is chairman of the Parliamentary Standards Board. He's the guy that's supposed to be upholding the standards of members of parliament, and he's mouthing F off at the speaker. Um, there's, there's quite a lot of chatter going about in the, in the, in the tea rooms of parliament, of the commons, um, about this issue. And Bryant's stock as the elected uh, chairman of the standards board, I think, has fallen quite rapidly. In this country, we have a recent tradition of the speaker telling staff to F off, not the other way around. <laughs> Right, well, to round off today's episode, there was one of the lighter stories of this week that has a particularly close place to my heart because it's about a nightclub in Durham that I spent about three solid years in um, every um, Tuesday and Sunday evening. Um, it's a nightclub called Clute. And why, was, why did this feature on the blog today? Not today. Um, why did this feature on the blog this week, Calgi? Well, uh... Clute nightclub used to be owned by um, Dominic Cummings' family, and indeed Dominic Cummings used to uh, be on the door as a as a young man uh, taking taking tickets, uh, and he is still uh, the um, person who is in charge of Clute Limited on Company's house. Now Clute nightclub is no longer owned by Clute Limited. Uh, but Dominic Cummings uh, still has accounts to look after, and uh, it seems like in his post-number 10 retirement, he is returning to uh, administering the accounts of Clute Nightclub Limited. Uh, and uh, there remains only uh, one pound in uh, the bank of this company, uh, but many... Many nightclubs uh, are not far off that after 2020, and I think, I'm sure Tom has many wonderful memories, but the, the, one of the funniest anecdotes is there was this Europe-wide poll of the worst nightclubs, and Clute came second, and it eventually won first place when the first worst in Serbia burnt down. That is that is the first thing you're told as a Durham student. That's the thing that goes around <laughs> Freshers' Week, and then and then the the Freshers' Week basically culminates in this pilgrimage to Clute, which everyone sort of it's it's held in sort of a revered status. It's a, it's a, a very big thing at Durham. 
But um, but thank you all for watching and or listening to this week's podcast. Now, as I said earlier, the the viewership or the or the listenership is rising rapidly in iTunes, which is great. But make sure if if you want to watch us on YouTube as well. We're also available as a video. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you again next week. Goodbye.